I hope you're ready to hear me talk a lot over the next couple hours because we are giving you basically part one and part two all at the same time, a Wednesday-Friday hybrid out on a Thursday. We had uh, a lot of scheduling stuff going on Wednesday, and uh, here's the plan. The Rosilla Podcast today will have Rob Mullins, the AD of Oregon, but more important to you, the college football playoff committee chairman another year with him he joined us a couple times last year so he's great to talk to we've known him a while also some nfl with kevin clark which teams that were supposed to be great still have a chance to be good or maybe still great what's going on with the pats offense more lamar stuff which is really good and get some good just coach story stuff tales from the couch locked into about three different nba games last night including lucas first quarter the celts and clippers and a little denver houston and this Miles Garrett news that came out later this afternoon back on the East Coast, uh, the appeal has been basically ignored um, and his suspension remains indefinite. But now news that part of his defense for his actions was that a racial slur was used and that's set everybody in a million different directions. So we have a lot planned, probably two plus hours. Say happy birthday to Kyle. Kyle, we can follow you on Twitter where? Tom Shady 300. Tom Shady 300. Who wouldn't want their daughter to meet a guy whose handle was Tom Shady 300? Uh, And for those accusing him of the podcast scheduling problems this week, they weren't huge problems. You're basically getting two and one right now, so we've made your life more efficient, but it had nothing to do with Kyle. He was very responsible. I was taping a rewatchables, and we had all sorts of stuff going on up at the studios. uh, So I was there all day, and, and people were on Kyle's case. Kyle showed up in remarkably good shape and ready to go with a coffee and a just impressive satin jacket. So it is not on Kyle. Today's show, as always, presented by State Farm. Today's episode of the Ryan Rosillo Show is brought to you by State Farm. If you're fumbling with insurance, State Farm agents are here to help because with over 19,000 agents, they're local to you and available to help, whether you connect in person, by phone, or through the State Farm mobile app. Agents are here to help, so go with the one that has coverage and agents that you can count on. State Farm, talk to an agent today. Also, want to tell you about our boys at Zorro, because Zorro.com is where you'll find everything you need for businesses of any size and almost any industry. They have tools, equipment, and supplies for everything you need. I'm even thinking about starting some hobbies just to have a little more Zorro in the garage. Whether you need stuff for industries like electrical, plumbing, manufacturing, or more, who doesn't want to pick up plumbing as a hobby? Zorro's got it from brands you know and trust, and Zorro.com offers amazing customer service from real people based in the U.S. Visit Zorro, Z-O-R-O.com forward slash dual in all lowercase letters to sign up for the Z-mail to get 15% off your first order. Let's start with Rob Mullins. Again, the athletic director at Oregon and somebody who's been on the podcast before and currently the college football playoff committee chairman say, let's start at the top here, Rob. Uh, we got LSU jumping over Ohio state a couple of weeks ago. They stay up there now. It feels like, you know, that's, that's really going to be the debate and how this all finishes out. How much separation is the room between those two teams? You know, obviously we we've looked at them very closely each of the last three weeks. And as you mentioned, um, you know, made a change between the first ranking and the second ranking. Uh, two great teams, right? Uh, LSU with those three wins over CFP top 25 teams, Florida, Auburn, Alabama. Um, so, you know, when you watch that offense, it's it's something special. Uh, and then when you see Ohio State, you see a complete team, both offensively and defensively, and they have been uh, incredibly consistent uh, in each of their games. And, you know, they've got some, some quality wins as well. So um, two great teams. 
All right. You're, you've gotten so much better at this. I almost sent you a note earlier in the year after the first the first uh, rankings in that. You know, look. The, 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 <laughs> you're kind to say that. Right. No, the, 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 the move is, as I try to tell everybody all the time, the less they give us, the, the less we can sit there and try to decipher what all this stuff means. But as you say, Ohio State being a complete team, you know, that leads me to believe some people in the room don't think LSU is a complete team. Is that fair? No, I think what what we're saying there is, um, you know, obviously LSU's offense uh, is very good, but, you know, Ohio State, when you look at it statistically and you watch the games, um, you know, they've done it on both sides of the ball for sure. So, I mean, they're two really great teams. And when you get to this level, you know, there there isn't that much separation from, from what you see. The difference for the committee has been, and yes, there's lots of debate. So I wouldn't, I, you know, there's plenty of disagreement around this. Uh, the difference is the LSU's three wins over CFP top 25 teams. Does anyone ever say like, yes, I know what the LSU defensive stats are, but maybe it's this at play. And then that's just shot down because the numbers have gotten consistently worse the last three weeks. Like, how does that debate? I know you can't put names on. I'm not asking for that, but like, I'd love to know more detail of just the, the intimacy of what that debate truly is like the different opinions on what a team may or may not be. Yeah. So it's exactly what you would think. It's exactly probably what you debate with fans um, all the time is, you know, we're looking at everything. We're watching the games. Um, we're looking at all three phases of the game, offense, defense, special teams. And then each week we're looking at what happens that week. So, you know, it's exactly what you think it would be because, um, you know, you're trying to compare schedules. Um, you know, there when there's not common opponents, you're, you're trying to look at, you know, what you see. You're also looking at the data. I mean, when you look at Ohio, State's data um, from an offensive and defensive standpoint, they got a lot of ones, twos, and threes in their rankings. Do you think the resumes are similar then? Uh, well, I mean, clearly the, the committee feels that they're they're fairly similar in the fact that they got one. You know, we're talking about one and two. So yes, I think that you know that people feel those are close, and we we had reversed it after the first ranking. Yeah. Okay. All right. That's um, that's fair. How often does this happen? Because I'd like to believe that, and I think it does happen, so I, I think I know the answer here, but I have to ask it anyway. Is like you talk all the different numbers, resume, strength of record, strength of schedule, you know, you start getting, you can go real deep on this stuff. You know, I can find different strength of schedule that can maybe give me exactly what I want or something I don't want to see if I were trying to argue one team against another, right? Because that stuff can can move around a little bit. How often does someone just say, hey, I think this team would beat that team, and that's how I'm putting them in the rankings. I don't want to make this more complicated. I mean, again, the beauty of this process, right, is you got 13 uh, pros, basically, um, football experts, and they can set up their own system however they wish, and then you come into the room and, and, and you look at everything, and that's why you watch the games. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in, invariably somebody will say, well, I just think this team is better than this team this week. Remember, we, we start with a clean sheet, but that does happen, yes. Um, and then you'll get into some debate of the why, and you know, some will say, well, I disagree with that. Um, here's what I think. And then in the end, after all the debate, you put it to a vote. So is that what's happening with Alabama then? What specific, I mean, I think what, what you're seeing with Al, what, what the committee sees in Alabama is again, a team who's had, you know, some convincing wins, um, but they haven't played the, the, the schedule strength that some others have. And, but, Still, the teams that they have played, they've been dominant against, and they've played, you know, their only losses to a team that we have number one. Right, right. But I, I would just think that from the outside, and, and, it, and it kind of becomes this thing where it's like, well, if it weren't Bama, 
And that's what I think is impossible. Like we can talk about clean slate. We can talk about conferences not mattering. And I think you guys say those for very specific reasons. I think it's smart for you to say it that way, but I think it's absolutely impossible. I'm not criticizing the committee for this. I just think human nature, it's impossible to not buy into certain programs more than others and give them that kind of carryover benefit of the doubt when the teams have been successful. I, I just think it's impossible to try to remove that as hard as you may try. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know how you can measure unconscious bias. I think that's what you're talking about, but I can tell you that every member values integrity of the process. Um, you know, as, as best we can, we're looking at these from a, from a blind resume standpoint. We're trying to look at the resumes. Obviously, we see whose resume we're looking at, um, but it's really about evaluating them on performance this year, and that's it. So how would you... I know how much you love the hypotheticals um, because Bama would have work to do, right? I mean, the, the Big Ten feels as of right now, it's going to kind of take care of itself. Um, you know, LSU, if they meet up with Georgia, then that's another conversation. That feels like an elimination game. It's the SEC title game. How would the committee factor in no Tua if it's only a one-loss Bama and some other weird stuff happens ahead of them? Do you look at the team differently? We absolutely look at injuries. I mean, you know, we know exactly when Tua was hurt in that game. Um, and, you know, although we evaluate all 60 minutes um, and, and Alabama still had a convincing win, um, you know, we do watch the entire game. And we also know that C.D. Lamb wasn't available for Oklahoma and a number of these other, these other teams. Um, you know, we know when there are key injuries and players either leave games uh, or miss games. And that is a, certainly a part of the conversation. The Big 12 has to be worried, um, and it made me think that that Oklahoma win at Baylor with them moving up only one spot in your rankings means that you never really bought into Baylor in the room. Is that fair? No, I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's fair at all. I think, every, you know, what, what's difficult when you're uh, responding to these uh, fan bases or media questions is that if people kind of focus on one thing. You have to look who's above them. You know, Baylor's having a great year, um, you know, with the close loss to, to Oklahoma, and they've got some quality wins. But you also have to take into account that in their three non-conference games, those three teams only have seven wins. And so that's a factor, and you're looking at them compared to, you know, uh, you know Penn State who jumped up or, you know, some others. Uh, that I mean, it's difficult to measure, right? This is not um, a model where you know the NFC East plays the AFC West. I mean, we, we have to try to look at all these things and make a determination on who we feel the best team is. And sometimes, you know, it is an art; it's not an exact science. I knew you weren't going to say that was fair because um, you weren't going to do that to yourself or the committee. But I do love the point that you brought up in Baylor because I think it's very similar to Minnesota, where when Minnesota beat Penn State, it's a terrific win. I think Penn State's a good football team. That impressed me. I actually wasn't surprised that Minnesota lost to Iowa because I think Iowa is a tough team at home. But what it was clear to me that I thought the committee was doing that so many people on the outside were not doing, where it felt like, hey, Minnesota's undefeated. They just beat Penn State. How come the committee, the committee doesn't have them higher? And it's like, no, the committee actually paid attention to their first four or five weeks when they were barely beating marginal football teams and hadn't played anybody really that challenging in the Big Ten yet. Great signature win, but you put all of it together, which is, I think, what you did with Baylor here. And, you know, the the comp to that would be, well, Bama hadn't really played anybody. Look at all their strength of schedule. Yes, yes, but they are still destroying other football teams. And that's the part of it where I think people make it more complicated and not realizing that a lot of times I think you guys just do make it simple in the room, which 
actually, I think, should be applauded at times instead of trying to make it more hard and putting these teams in order. Yeah, and, and you know, you, you got to remember that the, the, the CFP rankings are only six years old, so still fairly early in its evolution. And for years, decades, decades, the poll mentality with the media poll and the coaches poll was, you know, win, move up, lose, move down. And and it started, you know, the initial ranking started before anybody ever even played the game, um, you know, which when you when you're doesn't doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You don't you don't even know what you're ranking on. Um, the beauty of this system is, you know, it's 13 people uh, with a different set of experiences and, you know, committed to getting it right. Um, but you also you don't you, you can watch a lot of performance before you have to go in there and make the initial ranking. And the beauty is we're charged with starting with a clean sheet. So, you know, based on a week's results, you can, you, you can look at it differently. How much of the criticism makes its way into the room? There have to be moments where you guys, like there's just certain names that are national media members that complain about certain things where you guys just, I don't know if it's frustrating, eye rolling, but I imagine some of that makes its way into the room. Not, no, no, Come really on. doesn't. Really? Um, you know, no, I mean, listen, we all, we all read it and look at it, but you know, we understand the task at hand. Um, so no, I don't, there's, you know, I, there really isn't. Um, we're, we're focused on the task at hand. We've got a short amount of time. Uh, so it's some intense work, but, uh, so no, I, we don't really, uh, we don't really mix it up over what, what, you know, what's happening. We, we, we block out the external noise. How's that for coach speak? That was good. On to Cincinnati is what that sounded like, Rob. Uh, (laughs) if, if you were though, and you point this out, like, I think there's going to be some disaster scenarios if it stays at four teams. Um, but that doesn't mean that eight is better than four. I think more people want eight. Uh, how do you think it would be if it were eight? I stay away from that question um, because the, I'm the chair of the CFP selection committee who has no role in that whatsoever. That'll be determined by the board of managers and the board of directors. Um, and there's a lot of confusion about that because often when I'm out and, and people recognize the role as a CFP selection chair, I they, they want, to, want my opinion or want to share their opinion on 4-8. And I say, well, the reality is the selection committee has no role in that. So – uh, I stay away from that one. Okay. All right. Good job. Good job on that one too. Um, but you know, there, there is something that, that actually like, again, I, I, I've always tried to express this and that's, well, you know, two years ago, they didn't care about Ohio state winning a conference championships so conference championships don't matter. So they shouldn't listen. It's like, no, 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 they, they, they do this in a very short amount of time. You're right. There's not a ton of data, but I think it is easy to figure out like one year, this is going to mean something. And then in comparison of like team three, four, and five, this is going to have more weight. And, you know, the Ohio State uh, Conference Championship being left out that year when they had two losses, I'm like, well, wait a minute, that, that's a very specific thing. So if there's a Big Ten Conference champ that has one loss and is left out versus another team like Alabama who doesn't win its division in some version of this, and I'm just using kind of like a loose uh, interpretation of what happened a few years ago, like that would be a different set of scenarios. Why do you think people have such a hard time understanding that like the criteria can be a moving target every single year because the teams that you're comparing are most likely going to be very different circumstances every single year? I appreciate you saying that because it can. Every week is different. Every year is different. I think 
you know, the beauty of this sport is there's so much passion around it, and I think fans tend to get locked in on the piece that fits their argument. Um, and it's just not that simple. It, it is a bit of an art. Each week, each year is different. And when you're trying to compare however many teams you're comparing, everybody gets focused on that number four slot. You know, just like we went through last year and we explained at the end, um, you know, there was a lot of debate. And the protocol is really clear. Unless somebody's unequivocally better, and if they're unequivocally better, then you want to put the best team in. But if they're not, then you go to this series uh, you know, of, of four pieces of data uh, that are part of the protocol. Um, and so, you know, you have that debate and again, people can differ, right? What's unequivocal. I, I clearly see a team here that's a lot better than this team. So I think they're unequivocal, but somebody else may not. When we look at the PAC 12, um, you have them positioned behind Bama, but you have them ahead of the big 12 teams. I know that the media uses this a lot and you'll even reference it. Hey, they have this many top 25 wins, you know, this kind of stuff, but like USC jumping into the top 25 this year. And when I watch USC this year, I go, you know, that's a good football team. Like they could get some good teams some weeks. They're not going to have a great record this year, but you can't sit there and say like, Oh, Hey, this is some walkover team. And I feel that about, a, I think it's actually harder to find those teams that are in the middle, maybe the second, third tiers that may not have this great record, but you know what? Like they could probably beat some good teams. But when you have a USC jump into your own playoff rankings into the top 25, does that all of a sudden make you guys look at Utah differently because it technically adds to their resume? Or do we overstate that when, you know, team 28 and 29 could still be thought of in that same group as a team that breaks into the top 25? You nailed it. I mean, we're looking at a pool of a, of more than 25 teams. And yes, you know, we do, you know, wins over top 25 is noted. But, you know, the committee knew long before USC went into 23 what kind of team it was. Um, and we know that there's good teams that are not in the in the top 25. And so we see that. And that that's the part that is hard to convey to the public is when we're comparing teams, we're seeing full resumes. So when we're comparing, you know, we can compare up to four teams at a time. We're looking at four teams on a board all together and we see the results from first game through the 10th or 11th game then we see their data and we see it all lined up and we're comparing it all there on the screen and that's part of the conversation we're all looking at the same thing and, and saying well we'll look at that win look at that they've got no wins over teams above 500 um, but we'll look at them they got these two wins so I mean, you are really getting into a granular level. So we know who the good teams are, uh, teams with winning records, and some of those may not be in the top 25. So what's the separation between Oregon and Utah then? And I, I know, I, look, maybe you're going to have to tell me because I, then I obviously have the follow-up Oregon question here. Maybe I should start with that because you're the AD there. What happens? Uh, I know kind of what happens, but can you explain in, in greater detail on, on how that works and you having to leave the room? Sure. And this is not the first year this has happened. This has happened every year. So, you know, when they put together the protocol, you know, if you have an association, um, me, I, since I work at Oregon, when Oregon's on the board being discussed, I, I'm recused from the room. So I'm not in the room. And when they're in a, in a, pool for voting. We vote these in, in pools of three. So we like vote for one through three, then four through six. If they're in the pool to be considered, I can't even vote on them. On my computer screen, Oregon is blacked out. I can't even click on it for anything to put them in the pool to vote for them. So when Oregon is on the board being discussed, I'm recused from the room. And when I come back into the room, they share with me uh, what was discussed and what the decision were. Just like when Dan Radakovich was on the committee from, from Clemson and Gene Smith was on from Ohio State and Joe Castiglione from Oklahoma's had to do it. Um, this is not new. I think it's people are just now beginning to pay attention to it because I'm the chair and the spokesperson. Yeah, right. I mean, that's 
It really is. I mean, other people have had to leave the room. So you can't come back into the room after the fact and see Oregon somewhere and then argue against what their decision was? I cannot. When I, so for example, specifically this week, when I walked back into the room, I saw that Georgia was four, Alabama five, was Oregon was six. And so that's, that's done, and we're moving on to seven through nine. But could you argue against Utah in theory? <laughs> Uh, so when Oregon is in there, yes. I mean, I, I do not have to recuse myself uh, when Utah's being discussed, unless they're in the pool that Oregon's in. So uh, you know, I would Utah would have been in the pool for four, five, the ranking of four, five, and six. So I would not have heard some of that. But when I come back into the room and we're discussing ranking seven through nine, I'm a part of the conversation. And that's a really important distinction. There is that you're 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 arguing for against a team that's already separated essentially from your tiers, right? That's that how you pull them together. Yeah. So, the, you know, you have pools of six. So there's six teams in the original pool to vote for one through three. So you, you debate six teams, you rank one through three, then you put three more teams in the pool. So you have six teams that you debate and you rank four through six, so forth and so on. Okay. All right. Um, yeah. Cause I just think it's the fascination I've always had with this. And I'm just lucky enough that I've got to talk to all you guys and, and know you a little bit is just, I just don't think it's as devious behind that door as so many people want to believe it is. No, and and it it happens. It's happened every year, I believe. Every year, people have been recused. Every member has a recusal um, because all of us are, you know, either you know professors or you know we get you know some coaches still get tickets, and so they're recused for those places. Um, So everybody has recusals. I still wonder if anybody will ever write the book that'd be like, oh, so-and-so is brutal to deal with every week, this guy. <laughs> well, I, don't, I, don't think that, I don't think there's any material there for a book. I don't think Come anybody, on. Somebody over the last I, few I years had to have been no, really difficult. No, really. I think everybody you know, really cares about the game, uh, you know, understands the process, really is committed to the integrity because of its importance not only to the sport but to all of college athletics. Um, so I don't think there's anything to be written there. Do you think, all right, I have two more things here. Um, is it fun though? Is it, is it, because I mean, there's a lot of pressure on you and then you unveil it on ESPN and it's a big national thing and you're going to see all this stuff and then you go out there and you're very concise, very efficient. I'm so proud of you um, as, as somebody who has this responsibility and yet you're just unwavering. The longer you talk, the more we can try to pick this stuff apart, as I said at the top. And like when I watched you this year, I'm like, my gosh, he's, he's so good at this now. Um, not that you were bad before, but you're just seasoned. You're, you're a vet. Uh, is it fun or do you guys get nervous? Uh, it's fun. I mean, uh, I think every, uh, absolutely every member would say how much fun it is, how much they enjoy the work. It's intense, um, particularly over a six week period of time. Um, but everybody, anybody in our industry would raise their hand. You can talk to any former members, um, you know, who speak, you know, about it after they're done about how much they enjoyed it, how much, you know, they liked contributing to the game. I, people love the opportunity and, and who wouldn't. Um, and you know, the, yes, I get a little nervous about the TV piece and what questions Reese is going to ask me. Um, but by and large, um, you know, that's just a small piece of it. I really do enjoy it. Yeah. Reese is really good at it too. I mean, Reese will make me think every now and then where I'll be like, Oh, you know what? Like that was, I would hope I would have thought of that in the moment. Um, and I, I think he's terrific at it. All right. Final one. Would you, 
If you had to rank Jeff Long, Kirby Hokut, and yourself seed wise, would you? Could you do one through three seeding as far as who's been the best committee chair, or would you have to recuse yourself from that as well? I would have to recuse myself from from that question. I do appreciate the fact um, you'd all get to go, I right? I mean, watch Jeff and Kirby. I wasn't first, and I I got to serve for two years under Kirby with Jeff on the committee. So I have a huge advantage uh, of having. You know, those two guys go first, and they both were really, really good at it, and have both have been great resources. So I would recuse myself from that question. Um, but I, again, I had a I had a distinct advantage of watching them do it. Well, look, man, I really do think you're one of the best ADs in the country, so your success is not a surprise, and I always appreciate the time. So hopefully we'll catch up soon, all right? Well, I appreciate you having me. I love what you do, and I appreciate the friendship. All right. Awesome, man. We'll talk uh, at the end. If you can come on in the final rankings when it really matters to see how mad everybody is. All right. I'm ready to go. Uh, I just need you to defend me. And now it's time for the State Farm Safe Bet of the Week. The Seattle Seahawks at Philadelphia. You can count on. But hold on, Philadelphia. Bonus safe bet. I think after the Seahawks win this game, I would not rule out the Eagles making a run at this. We'll break this all down. Now, we all know that Seattle is uh, arguably one of the best teams in the NFC. And their two losses this year, they had that weird loss where we didn't realize how good Teddy Bridgewater and the Saints were going to be, and then the Ravens put it on them, especially in that second half. But the Seahawks have Russell Wilson, who I would put second in the MVP race behind Lamar Jackson. Others would have him first. Uh, the Lockett-Wilson connection has been incredible. The defense is not the same now for Seattle that we're always been used to over those years. And I know what you're saying. Ryan, what about the West-East travel? Don't do it. Don't do I'm going to do it. I think they get Philadelphia this week. now. Here's the thing with Philadelphia. We understand that loss against New England now looked at as this awful loss when it's still like, look, it is a New England Patriots. The offense was a mess, but they were without two of their top receivers, and they still had Wentz on a deep throw that almost tied this game out. They were also without their lead running back. They lost one of their tackles in Lane Johnson, and I don't know that any of those guys are even going to be back or at 100% if they get them back against Seattle. But what you have with Philadelphia, even with all the Wentz struggles, it's a much better team, I think, than the 5-5 five five record indicates. And when they get some of these guys back, and they're playing at Miami, home to the Giants, at Washington, home to Dallas, and at New York to close out after the Seattle game, I think Philadelphia is going to go on a run here. The corners have been better. This team has actually been a little bit better than the way that they're talked about. So, I'm still picking Seattle to get it done against Philadelphia on the road, but it is not one of those, oh, right off Philadelphia type of outcomes. And who knows, maybe they even surprise us this week. If you're fumbling with insurance, State Farm agents are here to help because with over 19,000 agents, they're local to you and available to help. Whether you connect in person, by phone, or through the State Farm mobile app, agents are here to help. So go with the one that has coverage and agents you can count on. Kind of like how you can count on Seattle, Philadelphia, or Philadelphia to be competitive through the rest of the season. State Farm, talk to an agent today. I just want to follow up on a few things there, and I didn't want to do this with Mullins because I know I'm going to get accused of this. Like, hey, look, I like LSU, and if you want to say I'm biased about LSU, that's fine. I think a lot of you know me long enough that if I thought LSU sucked at other times or weren't deserving, I would say so. Uh, Ohio State is, again, I've said this all season long. If you're telling me you think Ohio State is better than LSU and you want to vote them one, you know what? I can't tell you you're wrong. And I think I'd even lean picking Ohio State against LSU right now because my defensive stance for LSU has been, you know what, the numbers actually aren't as bad as the surrounding discussion. And I just don't want to use the word narrative because narrative and straw man and OK Boomer are becoming my three least favorite things. But 
two weeks ago, LSU's defense going into that Bama game. And I remember I was on the sideline. I was talking with some guys. I think they were like CBS guys. Everybody on the sideline was actually had a great time talking with a bunch of different people. And we were talking about different matchups, like is LSU's offensive line good? And they've actually looked better now for a couple of weeks. And then the guys like, oh, their defense is terrible. I said, you know what? They're 16th in the, in the country in yards allowed per play. And he's like, you're going to be kidding me. And I like looked it up. I was like, yeah, no, it's it's 16th. And then they have the Bama game and it drops down to 25th, which still wasn't nearly as bad as everybody was making out to be. They got gashed by Old Miss. Gashed. And now they're 51st. So if you're telling me, like I used to have this thing where I could go, and you've heard it before. Well, the Texas game got weird at the end. And you know they were up a million on Vandy. Yeah, they were up 31-7 on Ole Miss. So if it were just a straight-up shootout where it's 35-34, and, I, and back and forth the whole time, I think that looks worse. But statistically, like these are what the numbers are in LSU's defense. So if you want to tell me Ohio State's the more complete team, which I think the committee's kind of wanting to tell us, even though you just can't put – I don't know how you put anyone ahead of LSU based on beating Texas, who, yes, I know is losing games now, but I don't think it's a terrible uh, – it's not like, oh, whatever, that's not an impressive win to go in at Austin and beat them, especially at the beginning of the year, the Auburn and Florida wins, and then to go into Tuscaloosa. Going into Tuscaloosa is a really good win, okay? Uh, I, you know, if Ohio State fans went into Tuscaloosa, I have a hard time believing that Ohio State fans would be like, yeah, you know, we went down to Bama and beat them the first time they lost there in like five years, but whatever, not a, not a huge deal. Like Bama's defense isn't really as good. By the way, Bama's defensive yards allowed per game right now, not being one or two is 18th, so it's not like it's atrocious. So that kind of leads me to the Bama thing because uh, two of America's, excuse me, two of SEC's most wanted, Danny Cannell and Joel Klatt, who every week put out their playoff rankings. And look, Danny's a friend, and I watch Joel every weekend and think he's great, but those guys just don't like the SEC. It's painfully obvious, and anybody would say that they don't. I mean, I, I don't, they're more than welcome to come on and say they, they aren't, but I mean, I look, I listen and I see all the content. Because before when Ohio State was ahead of LSU for Klatt, it was what? It was their strength of record. It was their strength of resume. Well, right now, strength of record, LSU's won after the Bama win, and their strength of schedule is higher than Ohio State's. When before LSU's strength of schedule was dragged down because of a ridiculous non-conference, um, you know, that Northwest Louisiana game that I was always referencing, it was just absolutely dragging it down. And now that they've kind of put together this stretch where they're beating power five teams and again, Bama at their place, they've jumped ahead of Ohio State. But Clatt, when he came out with those rankings, had Ohio State and Clemson ahead of LSU after he was arguing strength of schedule. Cannell is even more out of his mind um, because he's been arguing against Bama because they haven't played anybody. They haven't played anybody. Look, Clemson is an absolute scoring differential tear right now it's it's like a plus 300 i think in their last five games it's nuts that that conference stinks they're terrible there's acc so like they're setting precedent like to have i think it's back-to-back -back weeks only one team ranked as a power five conference like usually it just becomes kind of cyclical from like 16 17 on to 25 so cannell who was arguing against bama's schedule the whole time now mysteriously has ohio state and clemson ahead of lsu so you know i, I mean this is not hating. I like both guys, but this is your content and I'm only reacting to it. So as I've stated every single week, if you think Ohio State's better, that's okay. But if you're telling me one week, this is your argument and then you don't really follow it. Um, and, you know, I can't argue LSU's defense anymore. It's just not the same. But the other thing that, that Cannell had after Bama lost, because I cannot imagine he was like, I don't need to watch Cinemax tonight. Bama lost, and I get to tweet about it. Uh, 
He was like, hey, I hope the committee holds Bama to the same standard that they held Oklahoma to because Bama gave up 46 points in their loss to LSU. Again, this was his tweet that night in Tuscaloosa on fire. And he was like, years ago when Oklahoma had lost to Texas, giving up 48 points, there were questions about their defense. Well, there were questions about their defense because Oklahoma was 95th in the country in yards allowed per play. And in 2017, when Oklahoma lost to an 8-5 Iowa State team, again, good record, certainly not losing to the number one team and the number one offense in the country in LSU, Oklahoma was 76th in yards allowed per play. So Bama at 18, giving up a bunch of points to the number one team in the country and still sort of sneaky making it a one score game, which it didn't feel like Bama had one offensive score in the first 40 minutes possession wise uh, on top of the punt return. But I'm just telling you, there, there are holes everywhere. You could probably find holes in my stuff. I try not to do it very often, but I just think the committee, as you talked with Rob, sometimes it's not that complicated. So for everybody that's knocking Bama, having any chance of getting back in this thing and look, some weird stuff would have to happen. Okay. I don't know if they, I don't think they're going to leave out a 12 and one Pac 12 champ. I just don't think they are when Bam is sitting at home. The, the problem with Bama getting in, as we mentioned with Rob, was that it was compared to a two loss Ohio State team. That cannot be repeated enough. The circumstances were different or likely will be different that year than they could be in other years. But for anybody that's just like, hey, Bama isn't any good, I'd ask you this do you want to play him in the semifinal? And that would be with Tua. And now you don't have to worry about it because Tua's out and it's Mac Jones. But let's just say hypothetically, if Tua, as you knock Bama, if Tua were healthy, would you want to play him? You know what I mean? Like when Minnesota, people were mad they were behind Alabama. In a million years, would you ever pick Minnesota against Bama on a neutral field? If I'm being honest with myself, a man? Exactly. And we're going to talk to Kevin Clark, co-host of the Ringer NFL show with Robert Mays in just a second. He's out at Foxborough. But first, I want to tell you about my friends over at DraftKings. These guys get it. They've launched an online sports book created by sports fans for sports fans. Here's real good news. If you live in Pennsylvania, it's now available for you in your state. And trust me, DraftKings is hard at work bringing their sportsbook app, which happens to be America's top-rated sportsbook app everywhere. The DraftKings sportsbook app has it all. Over-unders, player props, in-game betting, and special odd boosts every day for the biggest games. This isn't some offshore operation like other gambling sites. It's a legitimate sportsbook based right here in the U.S., so you can rest assured that your funds are totally secure. DraftKings, the leader in daily fantasy sports, has brought their expertise to legal sports betting. Get in on the action wherever, whenever, in the Keystone State. Download the top-rated DraftKings sportsbook app right now and use the code RUSSILLO, R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O. When you sign up for a limited time, all new and existing users can get a deposit bonus up to $500. That's code RUSSILLO. R-U-S-S-I-L-L-O to get a deposit bonus up to $500. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. Pennsylvania only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Deposit bonus requires 25-time playthrough. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. You're in New England, outside of Gillette. Makes my heart warm. This Pats offense, we knew they were a defensive team. We know they have a hard time getting guys on the outside separation. We know their design. But the Philadelphia game just looked like it was this thing where you're like, okay, I'm going to finish this race, but it's going to hurt. It's not going to be fun. I'm not going to look great on camera. What do you make of where this Patriots offense is headed? Well, I think that Josh McDaniels, Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, they've earned the benefit of the doubt. Uh, it, it, I assume they will figure something out. I just don't know where their edge is right now. 
Because one of the things that Bill Belichick, Josh McDaniels are so good at, they find just where they're good at and they hammer it over and over again. Maybe, maybe it's the no huddle offense. I, you know, I talked to a couple of people here in New England. I think maybe there's an edge there. Just, you know, they're better conditioned than most teams. They have run the no huddle before. Tom Brady is that kind of quarterback. You know, I think in 2012, they almost broke the record for most plays ever run because they were doing the no huddle so much. So I think that maybe there's an advantage there. I think that weirdly, we don't talk enough about the James Devlin injury changing the identity of this team because I think there was a case to be made they could have done a lot more power football and throwing out of it I think they've lost that element a little bit Andrew Cowan had a pretty good piece today about just how you know modern NFL right now is you run out of the spread formations and you pass out of the heavy formations and the Patriots aren't doing that they're running three receiver sets and running what I would consider a pretty standard offense and I think that you can you can do a lot more than the Patriots are doing right now. I just think with this receiver core, it's a work in progress. I still think, remember, they lost Antonio Brown and they're still paying him $5 million. Um, that was going to, from a football standpoint, that was supposed to solve a lot of their problems. It didn't work. And so I think that there's, they have a month to figure it out. And I just, I think people have PTSD from counting Belichick and Brady out in the past, especially offensively. And so I just think no one wants to do it. And I'm not going to be the one to do it. Are you excited to ask Brady more about his social media habits on liking posts from Antonio Brown? Yeah, so he was <laughs> that was that was a thing yesterday. Was Bill Belichick you? was also asked about it. I did not ask about that. No, I did not ask about that. But Bill Belichick was asked about it. Um, Brady was asked about it. I there were a lot of Patriots who liked that post, and I think that there's I I, I think that they people just reflexively like Instagram posts. I think that so. One of the differences between Twitter and Instagram, yeah. tell your wife least, that, <laughs> it, <laughs> is that uh, when I am going through Twitter and I'm about to like something, I think about it in 20 different ways. How could this be perceived? Is this problematic? And on Instagram, I'm just smashing the like button on everything. It's like, oh, this guy, this guy's at a Weezer concert. I'm, I'm smashing that like button. So I think that it's a little, Instagram is just conducive to, to mindless likes. Okay. All right. I guess. I guess that's that's passable. What's the dumbest? Do you have a dumb Belichick question moment, or where he? I could see him liking yeah. you more because I know how much time you put into it. But it doesn't. No one's ever shooting one hundred percent with that guy. Yeah. So the first time I ever met Bill Belichick, uh, I had was doing a story about the offensive boom, and one of the NFL guys had told me that the numbers in the passing, sorry, the NFL scoring boom. And one of the NFL guys from the league office was like, you know, consistent, you know, on a on a scale basis, the passing boom isn't much different from what it was in the 1950s. And so I asked a question about the 1950s and Paul Brown to Bill Belichick. I don't even remember. I was 26 years old. I don't remember how I answered the question or asked the question. And Belichick kind of looked at me and was like, I don't really know what you're talking about. And that was probably the correct way to go about the question I was asking. And then I tried to, as he was leaving the room, I tried to get his attention to explain further what I was trying to say. And he didn't really know me uh, and he didn't care to hear my explanation, which is 100% he was on the right on. And then a couple of Patriots um, executives who had um, seen the whole interaction and knew me because I had introduced myself were watching this and I turned around and they were laughing at me in the, in the nicest way possible. <laughs> And they said it was kind of like 
looking at someone trying to ride a bull. I was just trying to stay with Belichick to explain it. And he was walking really fast. And uh, he eventually just out, outpaced me and I had to give up. And that was uh, that's my stupid Belichick story. But I have improved since then. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what you did, because I have done it and I'm still capable of doing it every now and then. Is it you knew it was Belichick. You're younger. You're like, how can I set myself apart? How can I ask yep. something really smart here? And then you're like, now all of a sudden I'm asking you about the growth and passing numbers in the 50s. And he's not that old. Yep. So, yeah, no, that's that's good. A historian, but probably, you know, not at that point. I've done it. I've done it, too, where you're like, hey, I noticed on your fourth quarter clutch timings out of yeah. t- timeouts, you guys are minus 12, but only on the West, Con- you know, and the guy's like, dude, what, what are you talking about? And the yep. question isn't even about the answer. So, hey, that's all right. We all get better. Um, Lamar got a lot better this year. I, I know there were certain yep. arguments that he was really good last year. Uh, whatever it is, he was not this uh, last year. It's incredible. And even though I thought there were moments where defenses were doing some different things that were going to challenge him, which would make sense still as a young quarterback, he's just, he keeps everybody in check, basically. Like, okay, you want to start doing some of these things? Well, fine, then I'm just going to run all over you again. And even though I always think the dual QB correction comes and it, it forces you to do something, whatever it is this year, it is MVP level, even though I think most of the time it's been Russell Wilson. So give me your sense of MVP stuff that I know you and Mays are doing. And then how we got here, because I never, I'm asking a bunch here really, and I'm making it conversational, but that I've always thought Harbaugh was a really good coach. And yet when things were kind of plateauing, it's like, hey, should they do something else? And I I actually really believe that that is a great example of an organization going, hey, we like our coach. We think he's a good coach. And even though the numbers wouldn't reflect him killing it right now, we're really happy that he's here and doing this. And, you know, thank God for that happening, because maybe with a different staff, we don't even know what Lamar is his second year into the league. Yeah. And so I think that people are talking a lot about the play calling, and that is 100 percent correct. The play calling has been great, but this is also a personnel triumph, too. Like the offensive line, these guys, those guys are bullies. And, you know, Hollywood Brown is really good. Mark Andrews is really good. Ozzie Newsom in his last draft draft picked uh, Mark Andrews, Lamar Jackson, and um, Orlando Brown. I mean, those are those are three of the backbones of, of what this team looks like right now. So this is not only, okay, Greg Roman, John Harbaugh, they're creative, but this is also, they just have the players to do this. They have the offensive line to do it. I think that the, the pistol formation is perfect for Lamar. I think that the way that they've built this offense, where they can show so many different um, they can sh- they can run so many plays out of the same looks. And I think that that's, you know, Chris Long talked about this, about, you know, how, how many bad position coaches there are in the NFL. And, you know, good coaching is the exception, not the rule. And I think that when we talk about things like, okay, they run, you know, a heavy backfield, but then they can run, you know, a million different plays out of that. That's not all that common in the NFL, even though it should be, even though it's probably easy to do. And so, you know, I think that you pair Lamar Jackson's inability to be tackled, essentially, with the fact that you cannot make adjustments to him pre-snap because you have no idea where it's going to go. You have no idea if they're going to run up the gut, if he's going to keep it, or they're going to pass. You know, there's a great article on Pro Football Focus this week about how they're dropping back to pass more, and that's helping Lamar Jackson for a number of reasons. One, again, is that it's really hard to make those defensive adjustments. And and two, is that they're just avoiding third downs now. Um, they're in the top five of just avoiding third downs by getting first downs on first and second down. And so 
I think that this is all working together in a really brilliant way. I think that they have the players to do it. Mark Ingram was an inspired signing. I didn't know about that signing at the beginning. Uh, Gus Edwards, you know, the the heavy backfield. I just really like everything they've done. This is not necessarily all the play calling. It's not necessarily all of Lamar's talent. It's Ozzie Newsome. It's Eric DaCosta. It's John Harbaugh, Greg Roman, and Lamar Jackson. This is um, one of the best team-building performances of the decade. Yeah, it really is. And I worried about the outside guys in Hollywood Brown. He's even been there the whole season, and I still don't think they have great depth on the outside. But these tight ends, I mean, Andrews was a baller at Oklahoma. He's a yep. big athletic matchup problem who made plays. I think he was even a quarterback in high school, too, which usually, you know, those guys, I'll double check that as we're, we're talking about it. But I just remember all his recruiting stuff and going, you know, this guy's, this guy's nuts. So, it's worked, and uh, you know I'm happy because anybody that's ever got any time around Lamar Jackson, it's like it's just so impressive. I remember interviewing him that first year before he won the Heisman, and it, there's just this realness, but a hum- not that fake humble shit that everybody does on Instagram, where it's like, look at all these things <laughs> I'm bragging about, but then hashtag stay humble. Like to me, Lamar has always been the real deal with that stuff, and and I, I think that that's the kind of thing where guys in the locker room. Knowing how jealous people can get when there's 50 of them, um, that's the kind of stuff where guys want to play really hard for that guy. And I, I think he's showing that very early on in his career that he's the all-time teammate type of dude. Yeah, there's an anecdote that floats around Baltimore. I think it's been reported about how Lamar had heard that Peyton Manning knew everybody in the building's name and that that was a big thing for for Peyton and a lot of elite quarterbacks. And so Lamar made it a point to learn everybody's name in the building. I mean, everybody's name. And so I think that's the kind of thing where he's just he understands what it takes to be an elite quarterback on the field but I also think there's just sort of a face of the franchise thing that all elite quarterbacks have to do and I think he is prepared for that as well so I agree with you I mean he's a great guy everybody just adores him inside that building and it's the whole thing is just really coming together right now I mean this is this guy is a legitimate NFL superstar and I think he will be for a long time both both again on the field and off the field all right, Andrews played wide receiver in Arizona in high school, so I don't know where that quarterback thing came from. So I just wanted to uh, go ahead and double-check that. Okay, let's talk about some of the teams that we, you know, whenever we go through the exercise, you go eliminate six playoff teams from last year because that's what you're supposed to do. It, it feels impossible, right? You're like, okay, well, the Rams are coming mm-hmm. back. I mean, the Chiefs are obviously coming back to this. Let's talk about some of the teams that we always think are supposed to be good, and it's not happening. The Rams, we know the problems of the offensive line. Barnwell had that incredible stat about golf over his last full season of games that his QBR and some of the other numbers would put him at literally the bottom of the league, which then makes you go, you know, what are we looking at here with golf? Like, what is he really, as a guy, to go from MVP candidate to is he actually one of the worst starters in the NFL? And that seems, both (laughs) seem to be extremes. So where are you with the Rams and trying to salvage what felt like another season of taking a step forward that has not like, even when they were three and zero, people could tell something's wrong with this team. Yeah. The weirdest part right now is that everybody was talking about the six, one defense that teams could employ on, on the Rams and kind of stop them, take away the running game. Well, teams aren't necessarily having to run the six, one now, to beat the Rams. The, the the word is out on some of these tendencies, and I haven't seen enough adjustments from Sean McVay. I mean, this is teams essentially in the back half of last year started ignoring jet motion. There's so much window dressing in the McVay offense, and essentially teams adjusted to it by ignoring it. 
And I think that was one of those things that wasn't talked about enough. And it's really helped. I think Matt Patricia went a long way in doing that. And obviously Bill Belichick showed that. And then you you pair ignoring the jet motion with a couple of other things. And all of a sudden you score three points in the Super Bowl. Um, I've been really disappointed with the offensive line, as we talked about. I mean, it just shows you, you look, I think that we have underrated offensive lines in this era because there was so many, so much quick passing and so much, you know, oh, we can game plan the offensive line out of it. And, and eventually people started to talk about offensive lines that they didn't matter. Well, look at Lamar Jackson and how good he is behind that offensive line. And, you know, look at Carson Wentz and the difference between when Lane Johnson's playing and when he's not playing. And then look at the Rams this year. They've taken a huge step back, and now they don't have the running game. They don't have the push. They don't have the angles. I mean, so many of the McVeigh offensive principles were were viewed upon were, were based upon stretching the defense to its limits, and they can't stretch them at all right now. I've just been really disappointed in just his ability to to become. Right now, it looks like Chip Kelly, dude. It looks like he had a couple of great ideas. And wasn't able to build on them. I have enough faith in Sean McVay that he will be able to come up with something else. He he basically uh, completely adjusted his personnel. Was running a lot more heavy against the Bears um, on, uh, on on Sunday. But right now, I just think that they're out of ideas and they got to go back to the drawing board because this at this point looks broken. And they are all in on this team. They don't have the picks going forward. They t- they traded two first round picks for Jalen Ramsey. This team is not fixed right now, and it's up to Sean McVay to come up with something new. And all the money that they've spent and have to spend to keep well, the Ramsey yeah. thing. And something I've just mentioned before is they they are not afraid to just throw the money around at a handful of guys, and that's what they're going to have on the books. So I don't know why the roster without the draft picks and without cap space is automatically going to get a lot better, um, and especially when you have to go out and buy offensive linemen that you think are good enough to improve because those dudes are so expensive. Like, you know, NBA players, I always joke about how much they make in free agency just because whoever's good usually just doesn't come up. And then you have a million teams hoping to get a guy who's overpaid. Like, hey, we hope we get to pay this guy $120 million, even though he's not worth it because the alternatives are so much worse. And with offensive linemen right now, there are, there are contracts where I think a lot of people are like, are you kidding me? And it's like, well, okay, but he's actually proven. Instead of me maybe taking a second rounder who we know within six months is, is not going to work out. Can you uh, add a little bit more depth on what the 6-1 defensive alignment is and, and how teams – Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not telling you I'm I'm even remotely some expert on it, but just to counter some of the spread stuff that we thought maybe was out of control, like indefensible. And it feels like, hey, wait a minute, did defenses figure some thinking? <laughs> it's like, did this actually become cyclical again and that defenses did figure some things out? Because that seems to be part of it. Yeah, so a couple of things. So if basically it's, it's four linemen, then two linebackers, and then one behind them, okay? And it's funny to me, because I don't trust NFL coaches on anything at this point because I have just had too many conversations with them where they've just been wrong. Like, I, like I will try, if, if, if the smartest coach in the NFL tells me something, um, you know, I obviously do not talk to Bill Belichick, but if he told me something, I would believe Bill Belichick, right? But the run-of-the-mill coach is typically pretty wrong when we talk about schemes and where the sport is going. But a lot of the coaches I talk to in training camp, and in OTAs or whatever, they were laughing at the cyclical part of it because the what McVeigh and even Kyle Shanahan, even though he's having a lot of success, what they employ, it's really, I mean, pretty old stuff. It's it's play action, it's Mike Shanahan stuff. And they have adjusted to this in the past. And so old sort of, you know, old-fashioned defensive coaches 
were a lot more skeptical that McVeigh's offense could continue to work than maybe I thought. And I actually didn't believe them. And they, they seemed to be on the right track. Um, you know, as Matt Bowen said this the other day, teams are just looking for crossers off of play action with, um, with Goff. And I think that this is just a predictable offense right now. And so this, what the six one does is it just gives, it takes away the run game, which everything is predicated on. You pair that with, Gurley uh, being, I guess he's not load managed, but he obviously is being load managed or he's just bad now. Um, they it's taken away the outside zone against the against the Bears. The Rams just did not play the outside zone hardly at all. And so it, the six one uh, kind of it, it is in the same in a kind of classic NFL way. It was tweaked and built upon. Um, really, it was Patricia and then Fangio and then Belichick used it. But then they, you know, I think the Belichick innovation was putting Jonathan Jones on the speed on the um, basically putting him at safety and having him on the speed or cornerback and having him uh, guard the speed of the Rams and take that away. And so it, right now the book is out on McVay and he's got to write a new one. That was an excellent, excellent breakdown. What's the wrongest Mr. You know, Coach Wrong has been. You don't have to give me a name, obviously, but I'm too fascinated yeah. with this. Where, you know, there was a lot of NBA stuff as this offensive explosion happened. Where I'll talk to a guy and he'll be like, "Ah, yeah, whatever." And you're like, "Okay," or everyone's just going to take even more threes. And so, um, you know, just right. because a guy has the gig doesn't mean he's always right. But do you have one that always stands out where it was somebody saying, "Oh, no, this is what's going to happen," and it was like the wrongest thing ever. Well, the worst ever was when I was a young reporter around when I talked to Bill Belichick for the first time. Um, and I talked to a scout from the NFC West team who swore up and down that Richard Sherman sucked. He was just like, no, Richard Sherman has talked his way into fame. He's not good. He's below average. And so I I was so young. You probably had this too. It's like anybody who was who was insidery and would talk to me, I just infl- uh, you know, reflexively believed. And so for like half a season, I was like, oh my God you know, Richard Sherman isn't very good. And then of course they won the Super Bowl and they were <laughs> Richard Sherman is really, really good. I would say there was a lot of awful, awful Lamar Jackson opinions. And I would also say that about Carson Wentz, quite frankly, because a lot of coaches and scouts are just unusually obsessed with mechanics. Like they're like a golf swing teacher. And if they find what they perceive as a hitch, that will spread around and it will become, I mean, it's almost like the Mark Twain quote, right? Like a, a lie gets half around the world while the truth gets its pants on. If there's a, a a doubt that scouts and coaches have, it spreads so quickly. And the group think is so pervasive that I think that it's just, it's it's amazing how many guys were telling me that Lamar Jackson couldn't, play, couldn't pass at the NFL level. And there were a lot of people, I mean, this was written late in Wentz's rookie year, where there were a lot of people who thought that Wentz had, you know, kind of vaguely similar mechanical issues where he was not going to age well or figure it out. And both of those things were completely, completely wrong. I think that most of the time, most of the time when coaches or scouts are wrong, it's usually because they had one bad experience and they extrapolated over every single player to ever come after them. The Lamar stuff, though, I mean, I I was probably part of that group, but then when I'd see a Andy Benoit or a Daniel Jeremiah or a McShay write up something about the intermediate throws that he wasn't being pressed to do anything and he would just miss them, I'm like, that's a problem because that's where a lot of these guys live. And it hasn't been an issue at all this year. Um, and, you know, even though Kansas City made him throw underneath and I thought, oh, here we go. Here's, here's, here's what teams are going to do. They're going to 
stay in their lanes, try to contain, you know, if they give up 80 yards running, hope it's not like the big 60 yarder that changes the outcome of the game. And they're going to give him these underneath throws. And I thought he struggled. I thought he struggled in Pittsburgh with those a little bit. So I thought that part of it was mm-hmm. accurate, but to think that he could become this like, yeah, anybody, I, I don't know. I don't know. Sometimes with players, it's like, well, how much, how much is improvement that happened and how much of it is just being flat out wrong. But I mean, you obviously talked to more people than I did. I just was sitting there watching them and also, you know, reading draft guys where I was like, Oh, okay. These guys agree with what I'm seeing. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things, first of all, Lamar has to hit the throws for everything to work. One of the things I saw a great Brian Baldinger breakdown of this a couple of weeks ago. One of the things they're doing to create space for him is setting up plays. You know, they, I think they, they went three times to Hollywood Brown, and then they fake to him on the fourth play, and they hit Mark Andrews for a touchdown on the fourth play. And I think that their ability to play head games, because defenses are already chasing their own tails against Lamar Jackson. They're already spinning around. And the ability for them to play off of defense's tendencies, have been re- it's been really impressive to watch. It's, it's part of the joy of watching the Greg Roman offense this year. And so I think the, but the, the thing we have to keep in mind is that there can be all the great offensive schemes in the world, but Lamar is hitting throws. He's not hitting all of them. He still throws some inaccurate throws. He still throws, you know, when you look at the PFF numbers, sort of off-target passes, they're still higher than you want them to be. But he's still hitting enough throws for defenses to have to respect that part of it. Yeah, and with the way they're running the football, like the whole thing, I mean, it's kind of back to the golf point. When they get that thing running, you know, golf is different. Golf is just a different guy, but you can't run play action for 60 plays when nobody can run the football. You know, like, so... Well, I mean, also, I think you can. I think you can. I think you just have to hit the passes. I mean, like, some of these decisions he's making are terrible. I mean, I think you can do play action, put a little bit of stress in the defense, all this stuff, but I just think you have to be a better quarterback than Jared Goff is right now. That's the problem. I do feel like it's going to be 2023 and Gurley's going to have like 11 carries for 65 yards and Monday morning it's going to be like, you know what, he he still, he looked, he looked crisp on those 11 carries though, you know, <laughs> and I mean, he's back. Just, it's just unbelievable how long this Gurley thing has gone on where some people are acting as if it's still uncertainty and you go, how is this uncertain? There is, there is no uncertainty. He's, he's just not the same guy and it sucks and it sucks because I absolutely love watching him play. So it's, you know, whenever you look at this stuff, it's like, you, know, you actually want to be wrong on this, but I don't know why people are still debating this. The Wentz one is funny because, you know, it's North Dakota State. He plays seven games his senior year. He's older for a prospect. And you think, you're moving up for this guy. Like, this is the kind of thing where you go, you're going to get fired immediately if this doesn't work out. You know, if he were playing at mm-hmm. SC or he were coming out of Michigan and he, he was the top guy, it would just be more acceptable. It's kind of like my old Przingis, Carl Anthony Towns debate. And granted, now Towns has surpassed Przingis, but it's like if you had him close, you take Towns because Przingis gets you fired quicker. And Wentz was the guy that I think gets <laughs> fired quicker. And that's maybe part of the problem there. And, you know, look, if we stay with another team that we thought was going to be good this year in Philadelphia, we know the offensive weapons that Wentz is missing, you know, two receivers, his running back, um, maybe two of his tackles, certainly Lane Johnson right now. Is Wentz somebody that we're enamored with the arm and ignore just the, the decision making? Like, are we are we so blinded by his MVP flirting season that we're not being critical enough of the times where it's like, man, you you're trying to make these plays happen that are the big play every time, 
and it's actually screwing up your offense more. And it's great that you're capable of doing this. You're in this rare class of guys, maybe five guys that can make some of these plays with the arm talent. But it's at least something I'm asking myself more when I watch him going, am I just reading the same stuff, still in love with that year? Am I making excuses for him, being better than Dak Prescott, when reality tells us he just he hasn't been that guy this year again? Yeah, I don't think he's better than Dak Prescott. I think that for the foreseeable future, the 2016 debate is over. It's Dak. I think that he's much better than Goff. I will say that, Wentz. And I think that you see how much, I mean, that that back of the end zone drop by Aguilar is all you need to know about how much his receivers have let him down. I saw a stat the other day that Michael Thomas has more receptions this year than the Philadelphia Eagles. Like, that's a problem. And I, you start to think about just, you know, the drop percentage is really, really high. By the way, so is Dax. Dax is almost 5% for his drops. And it's not just... I know Aguilar has been memed, but there's a lot of guys who are dropping passes on the Eagles. And I don't know. I mean, how much does history change if, you know, the word came out that Amari Cooper almost went to the Eagles? There was an offer on the board. I think it may have been a second-round pick for Amari Cooper to go to the Eagles uh, last year, obviously. And you wonder how much history would have changed if Amari Cooper could have made Carson Wentz um, look like an elite passer as he did with Dak last year. I think Dak has taken a huge step forward and can look like an elite passer on his own. But I think that Howie Roseman is such a good GM and he finds value everywhere. And he, you know, got Alshon Jeffrey for almost nothing, you know, tried him out and then signed him to an extension, right? He can, he finds these guys. And this is just a rare example of him not supporting uh, Carson Wentz in any meaningful way. They, he just needs more on the receiving, uh, receiving core and he, Howie just hasn't gotten it to him. And so I'm with you, Carson Wentz at this point, uh, is not the quarterback I maybe expected him to be. I think that he's not reached the MVP levels again. I don't know what that is, um, but I also know that it's not entirely his fault. Okay, that that seems fair. And, and if he has a 2020 where he's back in the race and everything looks good and they're healthier and they have a better roster, um, you know, maybe this thing is still TBD. But it's just something, you know, I just make myself... You know, you know how you feel like a certain way about a player and you go, okay, watch him as if you hate him. And yep. now and now, what do you see? All right, one more thing before I let you go because I know you're busy, man. Kansas City, another one of those teams, you're like, okay, well, they're obviously still going to make the playoffs. And Mahomes, although some raw numbers will tell you he isn't as good, he's saying, hey, he's playing even better, which makes sense. And it's weird in this this world with Mahomes where it feels like, wait a minute, this is actually only like his second year. We don't have two full, two full seasons from this guy. Like that's feels like he's been around forever. It's just the impact that he's had. DVOA still loves Kansas City. Uh, they're the second best offense behind Dallas by their metrics. Their defense is higher than I think anybody would think at 12. Um, and they're behind New England, Baltimore as the third best team. And I don't know how much you put into DVOA, but I, I like it better than some of the raw stuff. Is Kansas City still a really good team? Uh, yes, they are. Because I think that when you have Patrick Mahomes, you have the capability to play like an elite team. I think there's obviously still some health concerns, but I think that, you know, one of the, we forget, first of all, that Andy Reid is still the coach and he's a really good coach. And I also think that this defense, when you have that many new faces, I think defenses take a while to get going. You know I mean? I think you have the honey badger Rashad Fenton came up really, really nicely on Monday night. I was you know surprised by that. Um, I think that defenses now have gotten to a point, we've seen this with the Belichick teams, we've seen this with Pete Carroll over the last decade, kind of post-CBA, is that you can peak in December. You can, I remember, I don't know if I've ever told the story on this pod, but I remember uh, I got a call from a GM 
two Septembers ago because I went on a pod and I said a defense sucked. And the GM called me and I thought he was going to yell at me. And he said, no, I want to educate you because, and in a very nice way. And he said, it takes so long for defenses to gel now because there's, you know, not full training camp, no tackling in OTAs, all this stuff that really it, it is such a work in progress until Thanksgiving that if you say a defense really stinks, you might be wrong sometimes. And I'm not saying, you know, that that the Chiefs are going to end up being the Patriots here. But what I am saying is you can always withhold judgment on defenses until later in the season. And I think that, you know, we needed Steve Spagnuolo to be better than Bob Sutton. I think in a lot of ways he is as a defensive coordinator. But there's also just, you know, there, there's still huge problems in that defense. So I think they have the capability to still be an elite team. I think the problem is they're not going to have home field in the AFC championship game. The Patriots are really freaking good. The Ravens are really freaking good. And I just think that the problem is not whether or not they are a really good team. The problem is there's just a lot of good teams in the AFC. Hey, Kevin, let us know uh, where we can get the pod with you and Mace. Yeah, Ringer NFL show posting later today. Robert Mays and I are going to do some MVP talk, talk about Dallas and New England, which is the internet traffic game of the year. Uh, it'll be really fun. It'll post later today on the Ringer NFL show feed. All right, sounds good. Okay, we're going to get to Tales from the Couch here in just a minute. But first, this word from ButcherBox. When it comes to meat, quality matters, but not everyone has convenient access to high-quality meat. Luckily, there's ButcherBox. By the way, mine just showed up. The steak tips are incredible. I've got chicken for days. If I had friends, we would cook bacon together and we would enjoy it. Um, I just don't, you know, when you're low on the friend total, you just don't know how much bacon you can cook. But maybe I'm just going to go for it. I just have bacon around. Just start snacking on it. I remember there was some kind of like fitness thing. It was actually the Lakers and a trainer used to just keep little bags of cooked bacon and would give the guys cooked bacon after they're done working out. I'm surprised that didn't help in free agency more with the Lakers back in the years. Look that up. I actually believe that's true. I may have to on the outro on this one, Kyle. Let's, I don't want to spread any lies. Every month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of high-quality meat right to your home. Each box is packed fresh, shipped frozen, vacuum-sealed, and contains 9 to 11 pounds of meat, which is enough for 24 individual meals. Plus, all meat is free of antibiotics and added hormones. It's the way meat should be. You get the highest quality meat around for just $6 a meal, and they even have free shipping within the continental U.S. I mean, gosh, think about how great that deal is. Right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box. So just do this. Just order one. I mean, look, order a million of them, but how could you not do that? Free ground beef, free bacon, 20 bucks off the first box. Just get involved. See how it feels. You may be like, you know what? My life has picked up since Butcher Box. I don't know if they're going to be mad if I said just try that because they don't. They want you to keep doing more and more. But I'm saying, like, if you're one of those guys that doesn't listen to the ads and then doesn't do stuff that helps support the podcast, just do that part. And guaranteed, you're probably going to be like, you know what? I want a second box. Just go to butcherbox.com forward slash dual, D-U-A-L. Use the promo code dual at checkout. That's butcherbox.com dual or use promo code dual at checkout. Tales from the couch. I think we got to start with Luca. We just had Sarudi on not two weeks ago, and I was kind of like, man, Giannis, then Luca to start your franchise. And I think what happens too is because Luca's so young, you start thinking, okay, 10 years out, you know, that's the bet that I'm making when I go ahead and take somebody like Luca. And you go, okay, well, sort of. But to me, it's still almost more like a five year thing because so many different things could change. You could say that I'm being nitpicky about the whole thing, and maybe I am. But I looked at Luca going into last night, and you're like, 85 career games. 
And Twitter's losing its mind because of what he's doing to the Golden State Warriors. And I'll run through, honestly, I just have the first quarter stuff because that's all you really need. And I can be stubborn. Uh, you know what? I'm not going to say I can be. I am stubborn. I am stubborn when it is a thing where it is, okay, this person's the best player in his sport. Or um, this is somebody who's now top five. And he goes, stats can tell us that play, that person is is playing at a top five level, but it doesn't always mean that like in the grand scheme of things, like these are the five guys. And now with Luca, I don't know what you do with him because it almost feels like any cap you're putting on it could be too low. Like maybe I'm wrong. Like if, if Simmons is saying, hey, Luca is the first guy you'd start a franchise with right now. I mean, it still sounds crazy to say out loud after a year and not a month in his career. But maybe it's the right answer. You know, maybe I should be. But I always feel like whenever you're less stubborn is when you actually start making those mistakes. Because, you know, we were on Anthony Davis as the franchise building piece, so I still think is in the conversation. And I know the counter is going to be injuries. But like I pointed out, if it wasn't for last year's debacle, he would have played almost like three full seasons in load management terms, by the way. Um you know, I look at Anthony Davis and be like, what, would I really want Luca over him right now? Oh, okay, okay, maybe, you know, would I want him over Giannis? Like, that seems insane. But like, even in the beginning of the Giannis thing, when everybody was starting to love him because it was so impressive from a physical standpoint, if you watch those full games, I'm talking like three years ago, Giannis, there are moments where you go, I well, okay, but what is he? And then he just got better and better and better, like Pascal Siakam, where you go, I mean, who saw him going from, last year you know, two years ago to last year and then you think okay well, what's the next level now he looks like a freaking superstar and i you know i i ask myself sometimes i'm like okay well should you have seen these things you know the pascal siakam stuff is so crazy because just the amount of times he's touching the basketball now this year compared to last year you think okay well wait a minute should he have just touched the ball well look he wasn't going to with Kawhi, but if he had just had more touches ball possession would he have been playing like he is this year, last year, if Kawhi weren't there? Now, would they have won a title? No. But that's what happens with younger players is that we talk ourselves into what the impossible can be when usually that impossible doesn't exist. And Giannis has become the impossible version of whatever he thought he could be. Um, there are other players, and I'm, I'm not knocking Devin Booker here because he's having a good year, but like in the beginning of the Devin Booker thing, you're like, well, what could he be? What could he be? And then what happens is, and it'll happen to Giannis, if Giannis has like an early exit, from the playoffs, which could happen because the depth of the East, at least right now, feels a hell of a lot deeper than it did, you know, in September and October when we we're trying to project this stuff. If Giannis were to have some kind of early exit out of the playoffs, you know what would happen. Like, well, wait a minute, if this guy's MVP or back-to-back MVP, what are we really talking about? Can he carry a basketball team? You know, what happened? They had that 2-0 lead last year, and then they blow it. So who is he really? And that's what we do. And I want to do a longer form thing on the timeline of an NBA player, but the beginning the impressionable nature that we all have from the outside, hoping that it could be different, hoping somebody could be the next LeBron and all these things. But Luca is doing crazy stuff and it's hard. It's hard to be tempered with anything watching him. So look, last night uh, he went into the game coming off a 42, 12 and 11 rebound, triple double. It's the first Dallas 40 point triple double in team history. He's now ahead of LeBron in triple doubles this year. And at times, look, triple doubles can be a little overrated, but when it's, I think it was the LeBron triple double is what it was coined when it was 30, 10, and 10. So last year's raw numbers 28, 8, and 6, 43%, and 33% from three on seven attempts per game from outside. This year, the raw numbers 30, 10 and a half um, boards, or no, excuse me, 10 and a half assists. It's the assist number first. I apologize. Nine and a half boards, 49%. 
from the floor, 33-ish percent from three on nine attempts. The PER, which I know is almost becoming an OK Boomer thing. And by the way, the OK Boomer tweets suck. <laughs> they're, just, they're just not funny. Um, and everybody does them now with anything um, that I do because Long said it to me once and now people won't stop doing it. Uh, his PER was 19 and a half. This year it's 32 and a half. And the usage rate went from 31% last year to 38%. And I'm going to get into the usage a little bit later. There was, there was moments last night where it was unbelievably easy. Because the thing with Luca that you'd say is, okay, if there's a one hole in his game, it's like, is he this killer from outside shooting? <laughs> and no, he's not Steph or even Harden, even though Harden's numbers have dipped a little bit this year. But yeah, I'm not worried about Harden not being able to make threes. You're not going to put him in that class, but that's what we want to do. Because now we've all raised the stakes. And we're like, we want every single thing to be perfect. It's not that you rebound at an absurd historical rate for a guard. It's not that you see everything. Like he had a lob with Powell where he read the screen and roll perfectly. He had another one where he threw it up ahead in the corner to a three-point shooter that was set up before the defense was and he saw it. He had another play where he was in transition and went no look to Finney Smith to his right side where the no look completely froze the defender. He's got that Nash thing going on where when Nash used to drive, it was my favorite thing to watch. Steve Nash would drive and defenses just didn't know what to do. And they were always worried about the pass that people would just be jumping out of his way. And now you have guys that don't know if they should jump at him, jump away from him, come off of the outside shooters to give help. Like Willie Colley Stein had a moment where he didn't want to come off of Przingis when Luca had a wide open layup because he still wasn't sure. Now that may have been Willie Colley Stein and a lifeless Golden State team, which at times has looked at least like they're trying, but that team is really bad and they're historically bad defensively. And it's all going to make sense because it's a bunch of role players. And, you know, I tweeted out last night that Sam Hinkie said, Hey, I kind of like this group. Um, this would be a Hinkie by design roster. And with Golden State, it's only the aftermath of multiple injuries and and hoping to be competitive. And now they're not going to be competitive. And they were they were lifeless last night. Alec Burks at one point had a three hit in his face. He just like early in the game is like this is ridiculous. So Luca goes for twenty two five and five in the first quarter, and you're just sitting there going like anything's possible maybe with this guy. He's got this Kawhi shoulder frame, and he's bigger than Kawhi. Where Kawhi can dribble into you, you're in front of him, you don't know really what to do because it's almost like that imaginary girls lacrosse bubble. I don't even know if they have that anymore. But that's how Kawhi is able to get away with everything he is because you just you can't get as close to him as you can with other guys. And it's the same thing with Luca. Luca understands the pacing of his dribble, when to speed you up, when to slow you down. And I did compare him to Harden coming out of the draft. So this was never a hey, I don't like Luca. I just pushed back on could we really be watching the best player in the NBA? And on top of this all, the Mavs are a five seed, okay? They're a five seed. So it's not like Luke is doing this and, oh, hey, by the way, it's really impressive. The numbers are sick, but they're two and ten. No, that's not the case. So this is open-minded Luka for the rest of the season. I'm, I'm going to look at it that way. I'm going to try not to be stubborn. Um, and it's not knocking the game. It's going, are we really looking at somebody who could be considered the best player in the NBA by the end of his second season? Is that really possible? And then what happens too? And this is it. It's not, hey, great stats. Oh, hey, you made the playoffs. Just back to the honest thing. It is, if you're really one of those special, special guys, or there's maybe five or six of them that can carry a franchise, then you need to carry your franchise and you can't make a ton of excuses about everybody around you. And as good as Carlisle is, and I expect Porzingis to get better because it's been a little rough here in his Dallas run, I don't 
you know, look, I, I still have a hard time believing talent-wise the roster is good enough to take out some of those top four teams in the West. But it is so impressive. Uh, I'm, I don't want to say I'm going to run out of things to say about him because I think he's going to do so many different things that are impressive that we'll still be able to talk about him. But um, that's where I'm at right now with Luca. Okay. I'm trying to think if I left out anything there. Well, you know, I don't want to do – I'm sick of the Luca-Trey Young thing, but it was weird. It was almost like Luca. once people were like, hey, wait a minute, did the Hawks win the trade? Like, actually, how about no, and I just crank this up to another unobtainable level. Who wants to talk Rockets-Nuggets? No one? Okay, we'll do it. We'll make it quick. <laughs> Fourth quarter, 82-73. I told myself, like, don't – but, hey, look, the Rockets, after a bad defensive start, bad record start, they'd won eight straight. Clint Capella, by the way. 20-plus rebounds in five straight games. That's a franchise record. He's been incredible for them. Here's a weird number that I noticed with Houston. I was digging through the stuff, prepping for it. They were 27th in pace last year, number two in offensive efficiency. Now, that makes sense because you go, wait a minute, Houston, you know, slow, dribble out the shot clock, do whatever. They're going so much faster now, or at least their pace comparatively runs so much faster. Third in pace, number three in offensive efficiency, and their defense was really good. I think it was like a top five defensive efficiency during that eight-game win streak. So that's uh, that's good news. That's good news for the Rockets. And, you know, we all know where I stand with the team. But um, they were they were just kind of a mess last night. Like, I don't look at it going up, see, huh, they're not that good. No, no, not at all. I expect them to have a good regular season record. But Westbrook starts the fourth quarter. And then Harden actually came back in around 10 minutes-ish because they were down in this one. 88-78. Um, this was, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to do a little bit of, because it was really just one of those, turned into like this bullshit fourth quarter. The officials were making a mess out of the whole thing. The way it was called all over the place was kind of a mess, so I'm not making it out to be any sort of bias. It just, guys were getting in the post, and then they were being called for offensive fouls, and now players can stick their arms through the offensive player's arms and get their arms hooked in there when the ball is even in the play, and then that becomes some sort of hooking play, so that was weird. But there was also there were bad charges called. There was all sorts of stuff going on that I didn't love. But Harden had a really bad stretch. We're down ten. He has a bad pass at the top of the key. Um, Craig goes for the ball as it's being you know it's rolling back towards the Nuggets basket. Harden falls down totally on purpose. Rockets fans are going to say. They're going to tell their kids that it was actually a foul on Craig, if you can get that meme joke. Um, Craig throws down what was supposed to be a 360, more like a 270, but we give him credit for it. So then the next play, Westbrook actually had a pick and roll. It was a nice play. It was a miss because it was a really good defensive play. And Harden just lets his guy run away from him. And then Harden did some weird, like, I'm playing center field thing where he was so far removed from play, it was laughable. And I cut the video of it. I sent it to one of my buddies. He's like, what is this? What is this? Uh, and that turned it from a 10-point game to 92-78. And then Harden came right back down because he was mad and kicked his legs out and, of course, got the free throws. And um, they challenged it. And I don't know why coaches are challenging any of this stuff. You think the pass interference things are being ignored by refs? The coaching challenge stuff in the NBA is like, nah, whatever. We're, we're done with you. I didn't really like Denver's offense much either here. I mean, Denver really just did a better job with Houston. Again, it was just a mucked-up fourth quarter. But Denver had these moments where they were getting Jokic on these high screens, really simple stuff, high screens. He gets the switch with the smaller perimeter player. Murray has to play it. And Murray didn't get him the ball. Murray apologized to him once. Murray tried to get him at another time. They called a bad offensive foul on Jokic. And there's there's really not much more that I can add. Like, I didn't look at this and go, wow, Houston's really scaring me now. Not at all. And, you know, Denver, I still resist that they're going to be better than the Clippers or the Lakers, maybe even Utah. You know, I think they get Houston. 
I just, I don't know. I, I know, I know how good the record is. I know what the season could be, but I'm going to have to see like longer prolonged stretches of, of really, I don't know, buying into, to Denver as, Hey, I, I have them first. I, I think Jalen's like the only guy that I ever hear talking them up uh, as much as he does. And if we look at it right now, yeah, Denver's seventh, 17th in offensive rating. And I know their defensive rating is uh, obviously not off the top of my head. Yeah, I thought they were top 10. They're eighth. So not a, not a ton on that one. Not a huge compliment and certainly not a huge criticism of either team at all. Celtics and Clippers. You didn't get a ticket to this one, Kyle? No, I don't get Clippers tickets anymore. They're too good. Because they're good? Yeah, plus I'm a Knicks guy. I don't, I'm not like a Celtics guy. Okay. Um... You're a Knicks guy? Sorry. It sucks for me, too. Well, I don't get your fandom, though. Don't tell me you like Duke, but also Notre Dame football. No, dude, I'm from New York. I'm not from Boston. So why do you like the Pats? Because we were in a football house. And I was, like, paying attention around 2001, 2002. I was like, hey, this guy's pretty good. <laughs> hey, you know what? That that worked out I got a you. jersey from, like, 04, so I don't, you know, I got I at least got some creds. I'm going to jump into Clippers Celts. That game was a lot of fun last night. But first, this from Sales Genie. This episode is brought to you by Sales Genie, a product of Info Group. If you're in sales marketing or own your own business, listen up. For nearly 50 years, Info Group has helped professionals succeed just like you. We all know the number one reason salespeople and businesses fail in general is because they're challenged in finding new customers, right? That makes sense. Hey, I'm not even, I'm not even, I don't even have my own startup right now. And I'm reading that sentence going, hey, I can relate to that. I'm here to tell you all you need is the right audience to call on or market to. Sales Genie is the proven way to find, acquire, and retain customers. Now, Sales Genie can't make you pick up the phone or bring your next customer to your doorstep, but it will provide you with all the B2B and B2C audiences for prospecting, whether it's calling, direct mail, email, or display advertising. If you're serious about finding your next customer and growing your business, give Sales Genie a call for your free 14-day trial. Call 866 866- Five six seven zero six eight four, or go to www.salesgenie.com forward slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's salesgenie.com slash Ryan, S-A-L-E-S, genie, G-E-N-I-E, dot com slash R-Y-E-N, Ryan, or call 866-567-0684. I might just go on there to see what the hell's going on. What would you be doing, Kyle, if you weren't producing high-level podcasts? Do you think you'd be think you'd be cold calling? I was a janitor before this and then um groundskeeper. Okay. Like like, like Goodwill Hunting? Is that why you and Matt Damon got along so well? <laughs> yeah, well I was the janitor and then I, I I realized I like groundskeeping better, like driving the trucks. Where were you a janitor? Um Spack and Kill Union Free School District in New York. How old were you? 22 okay 20. i mean so 20 20 uh in, in between college and then after uh they offered me a full-time position as a groundskeeper and i was gonna take it and then um you know i came out here instead i have so many questions um you graduated from college yeah Speech, and you ended up as a janitor? Well, speech communications. It was in between college, you know what I mean? I, I was work uh, summers as a janitor, you know. Oh, like, all right. Wax the floors and shit, and, you know. And then um, I started to switch to, uh, what's the name? I switched to groundskeeping. I thought it was probably like working with my hands. It was cool. 
Got the driver. No, the groundskeeping thing. Yeah, but I just would imagine fresh out. All right, you hadn't graduated college. I'm just thinking of like. So then I graduated that summer. I was doing groundskeeping again, and I was like, Yeah, all right. They offered me a full time, and then I was like, Actually, I'm going to go to L.A. Thanks, though. Yeah, I could see how moving to L.A. to work for Bill's company was more enticing. The groundskeeping thing, I'm with you. I thought perhaps there was a chance you graduated from college, and then right out of college, your first job was a janitor, and I would imagine that. You were like, to let down. I, I don't, no offense to any of the janitors out there. I'm just saying that during orientation, the school wasn't like, and in four years, we have an unbelievable placement in the janitorial services <laughs> industry. Um, that would not be something I would think parents would be like, well, this, this seems like a great idea to take out a ton of loans. I will say you get to see the underbelly of the public school system, which, you know, a lot of people only think that, you know, teachers sleep in their classrooms or something. It gets crazy in there. That's all I'll say. It gets crazy in the public crazy. school system. Oh yeah, teachers sleeping with janitors, sh- cheating and whatever, and wow. calling people's wives and oh god, <laughs> crazy. So scandalous. It, it I had really no was. Idea. Dude. You would never. You know, think. I just thought it was about simple green inventory and <laughs> keeping, making sure you clean your mop right. Okay, uh, let's talk Celts. They were OS sixteen to start from three. Kawhi started slow. It's the first Kawhi Paul George game. And then they do the thing. You know, I should just double check this box score because the the whole like the Zubots deal and how they how they do the minutes with this is really funny. Um hey, Zubots actually played more minutes. He played 22. So he was in there at the end. He just didn't take any shots. He only took three. And then Harkless, basically, it ends up being Montrez and Lou Williams that play bigger minutes than Zubots. Harkless, um, Paul George played 37 minutes last night. He had 25. Kawhi, it was a, it was a quiet Kawhi night uh, until a little bit later. T- Jason Tatum, unbelievable third quarter, unreal threes. He just looked awesome. That jab step gets you going the other way, hits it right in your face. So it was not one of those nights where I'm going, hey, is Jason Tatum going to be Jeff Green? Because um, I do have those moments where I get nervous about that. The big situation with Boston is going to be a problem. It just is. I mean, Grant Williams hasn't been great, but it's a lot to ask a rookie. Hey, by the way, a rookie that had the ball and made decisions at Tennessee, and that's why he was so good. Like the stuff that made him really good and makes him a smart player, and and he shows these flashes of, of really smart plays. But when you never get to have the ball, and then you're supposed to make an impact as like an undersized guy playing a front line deal, it's not that great. But they did play him with Canner. Canner hasn't been playing minutes the last two games at all. I don't know if that's just easing him in or if it's Cantor. Uh, they played him with Rob Williams at some point. And the Celtics were up here. I mean, they, they had a lead in the fourth quarter. Uh, there was good stuff going on with Tatum. Uh, Marcus Smart did not have a good game. We're going to get to that. We did not have a good offensive game. But then the Clippers are just taking threes all over the place. And... I looked at it. They're actually not a huge three-point attempt team as far as their totals this year, but they took 45 of them last night. So did the Celtics, by the way. The, the Clippers are 18th in three-point attempts per game, um, and they're 18th in percentage from out there, but they couldn't stop taking them last night. So the fourth quarter, you've got Kemba, Wanamaker, uh, Jalen, Grant, and then Williams. And of course, Wanamaker's out for Tatum. Grant's out for Smart when they go smaller. Williams is out for Tice. And then the Clippers, we already told you they're closing group for all of this. I just love what the Clippers have, where if you're building a team, like it's great in theory to say, hey, we want all these interchangeable wings that can shoot, can score, and can defend everybody. The Clippers have the best one in the league, who's the best player in the league. 
And somebody else in Paul George, no matter how you feel about his ability to be the number one kind of alpha guy, which I just don't think he's built for, he is a top 10 version of the same thing, shoot and defend and switch. So the dribble drive stuff they can do, spacing it out with two top two top 10 guys, like their, their guards are going to be Lou Williams and Beverly. And Beverly was unbelievable on the boards last night and just ate up the Celtics. They did a bad job. Uh, paying attention to Beverly, but it's an effort thing with him, you know, much like Marcus Smart. There's just certain players that are elite effort players, and you wonder why they're always around everything and they're going to play forever and make good money. It's because they've just decided, like, I'm going to go ahead and be this guy. So I, I do respect those players a lot, even if at times it kind of drives me crazy. But the Clippers have this dual wing thing where it's it's really brutal to deal with. And even though I've said at times, like, hey, I really like their depth, I don't know if I do love their depth. I just don't know that it's going to matter. I don't know that it's going to matter in the playoffs. I think the one thing you're saying, and I've heard it already, but I mean, it is a good point. Um, if you're doing a Lakers matchup thing, it's who's guarding Anthony Davis. Can Montrez really hang with him and chase him around the whole time? At least Montrez is going to play with the kind of energy needed. But you know, we're talking about a completely different size. So basically you're saying, is there a really active seven-footer that can go chase Anthony Davis all over the place? Um, his name's Giannis, and he's probably not available right now. And Durant's the other one, he's hurt. So not going to happen. You're not going to get that piece that's perfect. But with those wings, whether it's Harkless, Kawhi, George, and I know all of us have made the mistake at looking at like-sized bodies and thinking, okay, well, that guy can guard LeBron for 15 minutes, or he can do this. I did it once with Damari Carroll, and I'm annoyed that I'm even reminding anybody in an audience that at one point I thought like Damari Carroll was like, oh, well, you know, he's long. No, LeBron eats up all those guys because he's LeBron, but if you want to put a bunch of bodies on him, uh, that's a huge plus because that's, you know, we're still talking if it's a peak Kawhi, that's a lot better um, than, than anybody's options, and they have a second one, and maybe even, look, I'm not saying Mo Harkless, or any of these guys are going to shut LeBron down, so just shut the bleep up and finish the point. All right, so Kawhi, after the slow stretch, hits a big three, then decides to just dunk on everybody. Um, Celts still up, though. Marcus Smart had a lob that was blocked and went in, so they're up six, and then it just was a mess for the Celtics there at the end, and a lot of it was the credit to the Clippers' defense. Kemba gets swallowed up. They had Paul George on Kemba. They had Beverly on Tatum. Um, you know, Paul George hits Montrez, so it's a two-point game. Uh, then Smart starts up with this airball stuff. He airballs a three, and then after the airball, he let Lou Williams run right past him in transition, and then Lou Williams hits a three, and then it feels like, okay, the game's going to be over, and then Tatum pushed off on Paul George, hit it to tie it at 97. It was a push-off. Everything's a freaking push-off now all the time. Sports Center makes you think it's a, everybody's getting crossed up because some 23-year-old kid from Syracuse doesn't know the difference between a cross-up and an offensive foul. Rant over. I've already done that rant before. But this was about the Clippers' defense, and they won it in overtime. And that's the problem. At times, you'll see with Kemba with Boston, despite that eight-game winning streak, Kemba's going to get beat up sometimes, and it's going to suck. And I think you saw some of that last night. Now, Marcus Smart is kind of the story of this game because I know I've had my problems with him. Um, he now is on this stretch – he had these two big air balls. He didn't get back on Lou Williams. And there was another ISO play where it, he like 14 seconds left on the shot clock and he was on the right side. And I don't know if he was going to initiate anything or if he was just going to go for it. And Steven's like, all right, no, no, no offense here. Timeout. He's now 7 of 20 last night, 1 of 11 from 3. Game before that, 5 of 12, 3 of 10 from 3. Night before that, 2 of 16, 1 of 8 from 3. But the four-game stretch before that, he shot it really well. My point with him is always, as great as the Kawhi defensive play is where he goes and throws it off Kawhi, there are not, there are just not many players that are willing to make that play in this league. They just don't understand it, and he does all of those things, and it's awesome. 
But I know the offensive numbers are better. I know the fourth quarter numbers are incredibly efficient. But if you're watching this, loving all of these smart shots, like it's just, it's the simple, it's like my Westbrook thing. You could just take five, you, could, you know those five horrible shots you take? Just stop taking those, right? And then it's like, no, no, you need him. No, you don't, you don't. You've got Kemba, no Hayward clearly hurts them. The Celtics have this really good kind of lesser version of all these interchangeable wings with Jalen and Tatum and if Hayward's healthy. Uh, that the Clippers have and these other teams aspire to, which is going to make them better. Like the Celtics are just better than I thought they would be. They're top 10 offensive and defensive numbers, but the big combos going to be weird in certain matchups. The Kemba, when another team wants to go really big at him, is going to hurt him. And that's where Hayward comes in because his playmaking where Kemba maybe takes. That's the thing is the Clippers don't need to trap you. The Clippers just eat you up. They had a play where it was a Marcus Smart and Tatum exchange and it was defended by George and Kawhi. And I think they switched it, and then that was it. They didn't have to trap anything. That's crazy. That's such a great advantage to have that kind of stuff. So I don't want to make it in because the smart thing has been much better this year, but there are those, those games where you're just like, oh, God, you're just going to shoot 10, 11 threes. Like, I know the numbers are a little bit better, but seriously, especially when Tatum had had that kind of third quarter that he had had. So Clippers are the better basketball team. I think you'll end up seeing that later on. But the Celtics start to this and that eight-game stretch and how solid they've been defensively and how different this team is moving the basketball. Um, it's been a lot of fun to watch them so far. But credit to the Clippers for getting that one at home after Tatum hit that three to tie it up. I spent a lot of time closing out Friday's podcast on the Miles Garrett incident with Mason Rudolph. And basically, my my biggest premise just became this thing that we do in America where the person who did the worst thing is is right in front of us. And then we act like there's a million other reasons why we should blame all these other people for the guy doing the wrong thing. I am not a moralist. I am not. Um, and it's not like I can't sit here and have a, a, a sympathetic lean towards, hey, this is right and this is wrong. But I just know that I don't really feel comfortable saying like this person is the worst person of all time. And what was really interesting after I did that Miles Garrett rant that a lot of people liked, I had two different NFL sources reach out to me, people with actual teams who said, you know, Miles is probably one of the most impressive people they've ever been around. Uh, very similar stuff. I met him. I never pretend I know those guys in a car wash. I know Chris Long, um, you know, feels really good about him working with water boys. And uh, I know the water boys organization made a statement and it's a, unbelievable charity and something I've been lucky enough to be a part of for a couple of years. And it was very consistent. Like Miles had a bad moment and everybody saw it. And then it just becomes this overwhelming thing where I almost think as a society in the moment, we're really bad about talking about what punishment is deserved. If the NFL had come out and said, Hey, he's been for the rest of the year and that's fine. Okay. You know, if they had said today, you know, where we've lowered the suspension, we've heard his appeal, we've lessened the suspension. I would have probably been okay with that. And that might've not been popular. Um, people that were asking for the suspension to bleed into next year. Um, and that's probably a weird way to phrase it, but I, I don't know. I, I just think we do this thing where it's like, Oh, Oh my gosh. Like we want instant death penalty. And then seven days later, like probation's fine. Now this is take you know, weird turn because part of the appeal was that Mason Rudolph used a racial slur, which is news to all of us a week later. Uh, not to say that it didn't happen. I will tell you that I'm never comfortable as the white guy saying, nah, that's not true, because I know how that plays. If I were still at ESPN and on Get Up or something that morning and surrounded by uh, former NFL players, primarily black NFL players, you know, it's just always a weird role to be like, oh, no, I, I, don't, I don't believe him. Although black players, I've heard numerous black players today say, you know, I'm not sure about that. I don't, I don't know that I believe him. Um, if, if the slur were used, it would probably be caught on some kind of mic. In the NFL, they had a spokesman today saying Brian McCarthy said the league looked into Garrett's allegations that Rudolph used a racial slur last Thursday and found, quote, 
and found no such evidence. Joe Thomas, who played for the Browns, uh, you would think if we want to get into this world of bias, I don't think Joe Thomas is very biased, but he'd be trying to protect Garrett. He was like, look, these guys are all mic'd up. You should be able to go ahead and find this stuff. Uh, appeals officers are Derek Brooks and James Thrash. Okay. So, you know, we're talking about former players. Like, wouldn't they be motivated to try to find a way? Well, I, look, maybe they're just motivated by trying to find the truth here. But I think the problem for Garrett here in the timeline is that if that were the case, was it that you were so reserved after the fact when you were interviewed that you held it back because you wanted to use it in just the appeal? Or if you're doing the, okay, well, real talk, is he doing the thing where, hey, you know what? Let's use the race card on this one. It's your wallet. You know what? Let's let's go with this. Because it's it's a really hard thing to argue against. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, does the NFL know with, with absolute certainty? Is Garrett possible i mean is he, is he capable of making up this lie to protect himself could his people have gotten to him saying hey we just go with this play because it's hard to argue against it it just makes you know it's going to look bad for somebody to say no that didn't happen you know it's one of those things you're never truly comfortable with but it was it becomes one of these topics that's really actually impossible to debate right because because none of us like i can say the timeline seems off why now if not then Okay, but then I know the counter to that, as I've just explained. And isn't there some possible way we could find this? And yet there's other guys in the field saying that that didn't happen. I've heard some people say, well, only two people know, Rudolph and Garrett. Now, there's a bunch of people that were around him. You would think somebody else would have heard it. Or now you have Browns teammates that have to answer this. And some have said, I don't know what happened. And others said, I don't know that Garrett would lie. So maybe in this moment, you know, Garrett... I was certainly not aligned with all the other people that wanted this kind of like multi-year banishment for Garrett because it's just not, I don't really believe in that stuff. And I think everybody cools down after a few days. But if this isn't true, it's worse than hitting somebody in the head with a helmet. But I don't know. I don't feel comfortable saying, and I don't know how anybody else could feel comfortable saying uh, which way they're leaning on this one. Everybody have a great weekend. I hope you enjoyed the extended double LP. We're all excited pod. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We'll be back with Chris Long on Monday.